everyone, welcome to At This Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Lynn. Join me for conversations with people in the theater world. You never know who's going to show up or what we'll talk about. So silence your cell phones. The show is about to begin. So sometimes you see a show that will always be special to you. And I met today's guest while seeing that show. He was in the Tony-winning musical Memphis. He's also a writer, director, and a teacher. Please welcome Brad Bass. Hi, Brad. Hi. How are you? You know, I'm doing okay. It's uh, <laughs> it's right after Christmas. Yeah. We had a lovely time. I recently had surgery, a, a back surgery. Thank you, Broadway. And uh, four weeks ago today, I had surgery, and I'm feeling like I'm on the mend finally, which is good. And it's good to see you again and talk to you again. Yeah. The last time that I saw you, I was actually working a shift over at six, and you came to see the show. I did. I definitely did. And I loved it. <laughs> It was great yeah. to see you. And I, I saw you right away and knew exactly who you were. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a fun show. Yeah, definitely. So let's start with Memphis. Take it back yeah. to Memphis. So you are a original cast member. You covered Frank Dreyer. You covered. I was. Frank Como. Frank. Yes, that's I right. Was. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. You are. Yeah. You are. And you also did Harry Como. Yep. And so you were actually involved with Memphis from the very beginning. Yeah, from from the iteration that came to Broadway, I was a part of that. Now they had done, I think they had done a production of it in Massachusetts years beforehand. But, you know, I guess when they got the funding and La Jolla Playhouse got involved, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, I auditioned for that production, the out-of-town tryouts that made its way to Broadway. Cool. Yeah, it was so funny. A couple of weeks ago, we were going through some stuff and my my wife actually has a collection of vinyl from her sister and she had a whole bunch of Perry Como albums. So I was like, oh, that Perry Como is putting me in a Perry Coma. (laughs) Yeah, it was so funny. I remember when we were in, I think it was in La Jolla. And, you know, of course, uh, we did it there and then we did it in Seattle and then we came to Broadway. But like I had this blonde wig, blonde. And I had been researching Perry Como and I was like, he is not blonde. And they were like, he is. I was like, he's not blonde. (laughs) I got a a wig very quickly after that, a new wig. That's so funny. Yeah. And you you also um, were understudy for the lead of Huey. Yes. How many times did you go on for Huey? A bunch of times, but I mean, I, I don't know exactly offhand, but I did it a lot. It was, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire acting career. That is the hardest role I've ever played. Yeah, that is, that is a very intense role. I, rem- I remember the first time I went on. So I was, I don't, I don't even know if you know this. So I, my track in Memphis, I was in the show, you know, eight times a week, but they built my track. So if some of the other, and I'm not trying to be racial here, but if it's white people, black people. That's what the show was. Main Street, Beale Street, right? That's what what we call ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, if I understudied every white man in the show that had a role, except uh, Mr. Simmons, the owner of the radio place. And so they built my track. So if any of the other white roles were sick or out, I could play my track and do theirs as well, which was crazy. So yeah. I did that more often than I did Huey. So the other Huey understudy they could pull his track out, cut it, or have someone fill in for him, and he could just step into Huey. But the first time I went on as Huey, it was crazy because I don't know if your listeners know, but when you're an understudy in most shows, you don't get to rehearse on the set during understudy rehearsal. And the whole opening when Huey enters, he opens a door and walks down all these stairs. And I remember it like smoking a cigarette. And I remember opening the door and realizing, 
I have never been on these stairs. So instead of like being in character, I mean, I'm already nervous. I was like, I am going to fall down the stairs, you know? <laughs> now I have to walk down all these stairs and hope that yeah. I don't trip all the way down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's crazy. And they would just like, I'd go off stage, they'd change me, they'd shove me back out there. It was just, it was wild. And when the curtain came down at intermission, I fell on the floor and I just burst into tears because I was like, it was so much. And then all of a sudden I could breathe and I just was overcome with emotion. And plus the end of act one was a very emotional thing for him. No spoilers. If you haven't seen Memphis by now. <laughs> yeah. There's there's also recording. <laughs> they, they sold the copy of DVD. <laughs> I also played the racist, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, there there are a lot of tracks in there. And I saw Memphis like 24 times, I think. You're Memphis head. Yes, totally. Totally, 100%. And it's so funny that when you actually are watching and once you know the show as well, you're like, that, okay, so that, okay, they play that. Or... If somebody else is like, if there's like a split track, you're like, they're not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny is that I I had gone on, this was like, I guess 12 years ago. It's crazy. I'm getting old. But I had gone on this weekend. I was about to go on vacation to Florida with my husband and son to Orlando, Disney World. And that Saturday night, I played my track and a bunch of other people. And I'm at the airport waiting in line. And this this little woman comes up to me and she's like, I'm wearing a Memphis hat. And she's like, have you seen that show? And I'm like, it's so good, isn't it? And she goes, I saw it last night. I think it might be one of the best things I've ever seen. I said, you saw it last night? She goes, yeah. And I was like, I was in it last night. She was like, no, you weren't. And I was like, you remember the cowboy guy inside of the radio booth? And she was like, oh, well, cut to she is one of my best friends in the entire world now. Oh my gosh, I love it. Not even it. joking you. We we talked, we got on the plane and our seats were right beside of one another. Two days later, my family's at her family's house eating. She's actually driving up tomorrow to spend New Year's Eve with me. Isn't that crazy? Oh my gosh, I love that. That is yeah. so amazing. One of my best friends in the world. Love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, it's always so funny where uh, people see a show and then they're like talking, especially like even like stage, well, one stage during what's the thing. I think they right. were in the show and stuff like that. Like, yeah, there you literally have people's pictures right in front of you in the play. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was the same though when I would go to New York as a teenager. I mean, stage doored everything. Rent was like yeah. was my oh, life. Gosh. Yes, I Boy. wanted to see all the understudies. You know, I was like, I was a freak. I loved it. Oh yeah, I, I'm I'm a huge understudy fan, which is why this podcast is named at this performance because I love the. I love the slips. I was like, if there's an understudy on, I'm right there for it. Understudy life, baby. Totally. And you also got to perform at the Tony Awards. Yes. What was that like, performing at the Tonys? I kid you not. It was so crazy. I mean, I don't know if people know, but I always thought when I watched the Tonys on my farm in Virginia, like dreaming about being on the Tony Awards, that the cast was there like watching. No, 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 no. no. There, are no there are no seats for us in the audience. So you get dressed at your theater the Tonys are happening and we're we're all like we were at the Schubert Theater and we're all like at the uh the entryway at the stage door because there's like this little black and white TV and we're watching the Tonys live and like we had won I don't know what it was a score I, I don't I forget what it was and we're freaking out we're getting dressed and um then they bus you they put you into a bus and they drive you over to Radio City and you go in like the back stairs you perform and they bust you back to your theater you know and i remember i mean i kid you not i grew up on a tobacco farm in the middle of nowhere and 
I was the odd kid out who like saw Les Mis randomly when I was 13 and fell in love with musical theater. I didn't know what it was. Changed my life. Now where I'm from, there's like nobody does theater. Nobody does plays. So every year, like it was like Christmas for me when the Tonys would come on and I would tape it and then I would learn all the dances. I would like teach myself the dances. Like so the night I got to be on the Tony Awards... It was so special to me. And, and you know, a friend of mine, when I did Wicked, her name is Io Alfonso, Ioana. I had asked her, I was like, what was it like when you performed at the Tony? She was like, I made a big mistake that night. I didn't soak it in. So my, my advice to you is like, do not let it fall by the wayside. Take every moment for what it is, because it's, it's special. And I don't remember most of it. So when we got on that bus, something compelled me to call every person on my way to Radio City that had really been my support system and all. I called them and told them, thank you. That's what I did. It was really, I'm, gonna, I'm emotional about it. It was like so cool. And I really took in every moment. And it was an interesting year that year because also very uncomfortable. The four nominated shows for best musical, they decided to do this thing where all four shows in their cast are backstage. And when they announced best musical, we got to run out and perform. So it was so weird and odd. And it's like, us and American Idiot and Fela and whatever the other show was. I don't remember. Million Dollar Quartet. That's what it was. It was so crazy. And they announced Memphis and it was like, I remember running out and there's Radio City. And and I, we had already performed once, which was amazing. But coming out knowing that like, oh my God, I think I might have job security for like this amount of time. It was so cool. And we finished and the audience starts filing out and I just stood there and looked around and I thought, my God, like I literally made my dreams come true. It was like, it was the coolest night. It was really cool. That's awesome. And then Memphis got to perform again the next year. Yeah. And I was gone <laughs> at that point. Yeah. yeah. I was doing Jersey Boys then. Yeah. Yeah. It was so funny. I was like, I was like, oh, it's like, this is like one of the first times that like a Broadway show is when Miss Musical comes back and performs. I know. I was like, I want to do it again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll swing out that night. <laughs> yeah, why not? No problem. You mentioned that you saw Les Mis. Was that the first theater show that you saw? Was that the first like Broadway show that you saw or whatever? Yeah. So I like I was in Christmas plays growing mm -hmm. up. You know, like I played like a you know a wise man or something. But I knew I loved like The Wizard of Oz is my favorite movie of all time. I mean, I would watch that five six times a week, and I I would play a different character. I play Toto even. You know, like in my room. So I knew I love and I love to sing. I grew up singing in church and stuff like that. But I was in band in high school. I played trumpet and clarinet. And my high school went from eighth grade to 12th grade. And so my eighth grade year for spring break, like as a fundraiser, we like raised the money and went to New York City. And we were going to I think we played at the Statue of Liberty for people and just had like a spring break time in New York. And I had no desire to go to New York City. I mean, I was I grew up on a farm, so I didn't know. I just thought New York was dirty and there was violence. And and of course, it is those things are true. But we went and I knew we had to dress up one night because they said we were seeing something on Broadway. And I didn't know what that meant at all. And I kid you not, I had no idea what that meant. And we go sit in this theater and there's a big screen. And we were seeing Les Miserables. I thought it was Les Miserables. And I thought it was a French some kind of French or Spanish movie. I didn't know. And the screen that I saw was the scrim, as we know in the theater now. I had no idea. And when the music started and the thing went up and people came out, I was like, is this an opera? Like, I don't want to see an opera. And it wasn't, but it it was crazy. And, and I remember like watching them and then the stage was spinning and 
all these characters and at the end of the day happens. And I'm like, I don't even understand the story, but I was so captivated that um, I came home from that trip and I bought every musical album I could find. So I bought that. I bought Miss Saigon, which is like one of my favorite shows in the entire world. Phantom, which I'm not a fan of. Don't anybody hate me. And I just started learning them. And then I started learning about Broadway. And this is really funny. I still have the playbill somewhere from my first Broadway show. But I remember writing Playbill, because they had their address there, a letter and asking them if those people on stage got paid, because I didn't know. And this is like before the internet. This is like 94 or something. Mm -hmm. They didn't write me back. Thanks a lot, Playbill. But then I learned that like you could do it for a living. And so I remember walking into my kitchen at home and saying, Mama, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. And she was like, what, son? I said, I want to be an actor on Broadway. And she goes, oh, son, all those people are drug addicts and prostitutes. Like, she didn't know. I mean, that's how, like, backwoods we were. (laughs) But at 18, I auditioned for AMDA. I knew that I wanted to go to the American Musical and Dramatic Academy and got in. And it was the best training I ever could have had. A lot of people like to rag on AMDA. It was the most incredible experience for me. I worked my butt off. And yeah, I became an actor. Awesome. Yeah, I know a lot of people that went to AMDA that are now doing all these cool things amazing things come on don't don't get on amda people also your first i guess i guess this is your first like professional job you were in wicked in chicago yeah it was my first like big league job i mean i I had been working since 2000 my first job was working at the gateway playhouse in long island yeah that was my first paid gig i got it before i graduated school and i worked like regionally a lot for like three years. But then I was doing Kiss of the Spider Woman in Boston, getting paid $99 a week. It was an equity contract. <laughs> How that's even possible, I don't know. And one of my um, one of my castmates came in and was like, did you guys see they're having an open call for the Chicago production of Wicked and they're looking for a Fiero cover? And I was like, whoo. Like I, that is the role that I knew that I had wanted to play. I took my $99 and bought a bus ticket and went to the open call. And there were 600 of us there. And I walked in the room. I sang. He said, thank you. I thought, what a waste of money. What did I do that for? Took the bus back to Boston. And I was to supplement my income. I was teaching at one of those like Tumblr classes for like kids, like Cause you know, I, I was a Tumblr and I got a voicemail that I got a call back. And I, I remember like doing flips all over the place. Cause I was like, Oh my God, I got a call back for Wicked. This is crazy. And they sent me all the sides and I went back the next week. And of course, of course, like it always happens. I got like the worst sinus infection. Of course. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's your big break. And they brought me in there and they like vocalized me first, of course. And they made me hit the, the big, B or B flat at the end of the opening number, which I cracked on. And I remember slamming my fist on the piano and I was like, oh my God, they're going to, and they were like, you're fine. We know you can hit it. We can tell you're a little sick. Don't worry about it. So I sang for them. I did the readings of the scenes a bunch of times and uh, felt great about it. And I thought, hey, if I got a call back, you know, all 600 people didn't. And then that night they said, can you come back Friday to the Gershwin Theater for a final callback? And I was like, shitting my pants. Sorry, I curse a lot. Shitting my pants. They were bringing us back to dance. And so I got there and there were, I think there were eight of us. And there were four for a Bach cover on tour and then four for the Fierro understudy. And I knew two of the other Fierros there. So I was like, oh, God, hope you get it. And I just decided at that moment, that was like another pivotal moment in my life where I said, you know, Brad, you came from nowhere. 
you're following your dreams. You made it down to one of four people they want for this role for like the biggest show at the time. Have fun today. That's what I told myself. Like, don't stress. Enjoy it. Like how many people make it down to the final four? I mean, it's crazy. And I danced. I had the best time. And then they dismissed everyone. And they said, except Brad, can you come here? And I thought, of course, being me, I was like, I did something wrong. And I said, did I do something wrong? And they said, no, we want you for the job. And I was like, really? And he goes, well, this is Craig Burns uh, from Telsey Casting. He goes, well, we definitely want you for the role. But what we're going to do is we're going to drive you around to all of the different. So like in Wicked, if for like the Shiz costumes, these people make those costumes. And they had to drive me around to the different places where they made the costumes and fit me because I had to fit into the guy's clothes that I was replacing. I was like, I will lose weight. I will grow taller. I will sew buttons. What do you need me to do? You know? And he said, if you don't hear from us tonight, this is on a Friday, you'll hear from us on Monday. Well, of course I didn't hear Friday. I didn't hear Saturday. I didn't hear Sunday. And I didn't sleep all weekend. I mean, I I legit didn't sleep because this was going to be the game changing moment of my career for me, you know? And at noon on Monday, I got the phone call. We want you and we want you to leave tomorrow. And I was like, I can't leave tomorrow. I'm supposed to go visit my family for Christmas. And um, this is December 19th. I'll never forget it. And I called my parents and I, I talked to my mom and I said, they they want me to come tomorrow. And she said, you call them back and tell them, Joe, mama said, you need to come home for Christmas and you can leave after that. So I did. <laughs> and they let me leave after Christmas and I flew to Chicago and uh, January. So that was the like the 26th of December. And I think I went into the show January 10th and I was in Wicked. And which is, I'll tell you another really crazy story is that. January 10th, I started the show and I immediately start Fiero rehearsals. And February 10th, I I found out like a week and a half before that, that I was going on for Fiero for the first time. Now, this is a dream. I mean, like a a month beforehand, I had like $76 in my bank account. I was broke. And then I was going to be playing Fiero, which was insane. And so like a couple days before I'm about about to make this Fiero debut, my stage manager says, I have to talk to you about something. And of course, me being me, I'm like, what did I do? He was like, someone's coming to your performance. And I was like, okay. And he was like, Joe Mantello will be here that night. He's the director of Wicked. Get out. Okay. Oh my God. I swear to all my life. And I thought, oh my God. Because <laughs> he wasn't at my f- final callbacks. Mm-hmm. It was all of the assistants that do everything. Mm-hmm. And I remember like Fierro enters in this like rickshaw thing. He's like laying down. And I remember getting in the rickshaw being like, Joe fucking Mantello is in the audience. And I just was looking up and I was seeing like all of the sets like hanging up above me. And I I just said, fuck it, go have fun. And I got out there and I didn't, it almost felt easy. Do you know what I mean? It was like easy. And we had a note session afterwards that night with the whole cast. And I, I'm sitting on the floor and I'm happy. I'm proud of myself, you know? And I feel this like tap, hard tap on my back and I turn around, it's Joe Mantello. And he goes, stand up. And I stood up. And he wrapped his arms around me and whispered in my ear, it's like you've been playing it forever. You were so good. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it's like a dream. Do you know what I mean? It's like everything anybody could ever dream of. I would and have died right on the spot. Are you kidding? <laughs> are you kidding? He was so kind to me. And that following December, actually, they were going to bring in an interim Fiero for like, I don't know, month and a half, three months, I forget. And they were going to bring the understudy from Broadway to Chicago to play the part. And I knew Joe liked me. So this is like when you're young, you have balls, right? Like I didn't care. I didn't have an agent. Um, I had done all this without an agent. 
So I wrote three, two, one management. And I was like, I'm offended that you would bring in another Fiero. Joe Mantello saw my performance, praised my performance. And I think I should be the one assuming this role. Who was I to do that? Well, the next day I had a contract. Joe Mantello said, I want him to play the part. So I played Fiero. That's how I got to do it. It was just, it was, it was that time in Chicago doing Wicked is one of my most cherished memories ever in the theater because it was it was special and it was a good group and we all loved one another and it was it was a dream come true really yeah and then so you did that for a year and a half and then you moved over to broadway yeah cool. yeah which was a totally different experience than yeah Chicago. yeah i know because i I've, I've worked at the gershwin i know what a big production like, like it is oh yeah and and it was weird because like Chicago, everything was brand new and we were in a beautiful theater and everyone was just so excited to be there. And we were a family. So like all of us were transplants from either L.A., New York, wherever. So we we were in our own bubble there. Then you get to New York and everyone lives in New York and they're, you know, they come to work, they go home. So it was like everyone was jaded. No offense to 07, 08 Cast of Wicked, but you were. <laughs> It was a it was a jarring experience to go from Chicago to Broadway and and I was playing the other Fierro cover in the show so I was switching roles they kind of like the role on Broadway I was covering I covered like two different roles in another cast it was weird so uh, I my track was split and I, I learned a few new things but I was doing some old things and um it was just different but I met someone really special doing that show on Broadway um Anthony Galdi and that is who I'm married to now. So that was the best, the best part about doing that. Awesome. I always love when uh, people meet like either their significant other or somebody that's like, you know, like their best friend through a show because those stories, like those early stories from like being in the show and everything are just oh, so God. much fun. Well, I, you know, I always thought he was so funny and <laughs> I loved that I could make him laugh. You know, it was just like we were buddies. I'm talking about you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, hi. He just walked through. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was definitely the best, the very best part about doing that show in New York. Yeah. What was the most fun thing about playing Fierro? Like, was it a specific scene, a specific line or anything? Like, you know, it was. A lot of people like to shit on Fierro, but. Fierro's one of my, I, I named one of my cats Fierro. You did? <laughs> I did. The interesting thing about Fierro, and like, I consider myself, I'm definitely a singer, but I, I, I like to think that I'm an actor first. Do you know what I'm saying? Because I think that if you can't tell a story, then who cares? Even my favorite singers that aren't in theater, if they can't emote, like, I don't care. Fierro's journey really happens off stage. If you if you look at the script, I mean, the train station moment with with him and Alphaba, where they kind of like touch hands or something. I don't know. It's been a long time, Jen. But um, I think they like touch hands and there's like the spark and like something changes in him. But then the next time you see him, it's like the opening of act two and he's with Glinda and they're betrothed to be married. And so his whole journey of how he gets from point A to point B to point C, they, they happen all off stage. So I what I really loved about playing him was figuring all that out for me. Like, why did he change? And, you know, I like to try to find the heart of all of my characters and find out why they tick. I mean... Even when I played Huey, I didn't play Huey at all like like Chad Kimball. I it just I, that was not my interpretation of the character. I tried to infuse myself into it and how I felt in my emotions. They often would say to me, you know, you're too emotional as Huey. And I'm like, are you crazy? Like he he didn't have a father. He couldn't read. He fell in love with this black woman. And when he asked her to marry him, he never imagined in his life he would be able to do that. 
of course he's going to feel like emotional about it. And they did not want me to play it with emotion. And I just refused to listen because I thought it was false. So I, I, I don't know. I think discovering the journey for me was my favorite part about playing Piero. And dan yeah. dancing through life can be a bop, you know. Oh, I love that song. Yeah. As long as your mind is a deceptively hard song to sing as a guy, super hard. And there's smoke and then you're, they're like, don't kiss her too hard because you'll get green all over your face, you know. But I went on with some divas. I definitely went on with some divas back in the day playing Glinda's and Alphabas and loved them. Let's hop over a couple of theaters and uh, when okay. you're in Jersey Boys. So you covered you covered seven tracks yeah. in Jersey Boys. So seven of the ten. Favorite? <laughs> okay, yeah, seven of the time. That's right. There, there are a lot, a lot of male roles in yeah. Jersey Boys, obviously. But what was your favorite track? Probably the um, what was his name? <laughs> it's been so long. The 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 gay record producer Bob um, Bob Crew. Yeah, uh, Bob Crew. Oh, I, I love playing Bob Crew. Yeah, I'm like getting into character. There goes my hands. Um, I loved playing him and Peter Gregus, who played that role forever. He and I became like really good friends. And I just loved that role because it was fun. And it wasn't too like, there wasn't too much pressure, like having to learn seven tracks that are vastly different. And here's something you might not know about Jersey Boys, right? If I'm playing, you know, Bob Gaudio, the other Bob in the show, he sings like 10 or two, right? For the most part, but not always. So like with each song that everybody supports whether they're on stage backstage you're always singing right but with every song in every track I covered they would go from singing the tenor two part to the bass part to the baritone part so I had to navigate every song with every track and it was really hard to do and I wasn't given support truth be told by by management and um yeah for the first six months of that show I was really fucking miserable and I cried a lot because I wanted to do my best job and I felt like every day I couldn't and then once I got in the swing of it I felt great about it but um yeah I think Jersey Boys is one of the best uh it's definitely the best jukebox musical I think out there but um I just wish I had had a more pleasant time doing it you know because yeah. it's a real so I also loved um there's this big scene in act two where everyone's sitting down around this table and like suddenly there's just like no music happening for a long time it's a great really well written scene really well directed scene i loved getting to act in that scene no matter what track i was playing you know so let's go to 2016 you did a one night only show called bradell oh God. how do you know this so i do my <laughs> research a lot so uh, tell me about that show. I know. I was like, what did I do in 2016? Well, it's funny because I like, it's so bizarre the way life is because it doesn't ever go the way you think. Like I never imagined I would go to college. But when I left New York, I taught a masterclass in my hometown for all these kids that like were doing theater. Now there's a little bit of theater happening there. Thank God. I didn't have that when I was a kid. And the head of the theater department from Averett University, which is in my hometown, small private university, he came to see this masterclass. Now, cut back to when I was 18, he begged me to come there for school. And I was like, I don't want to go to your school. I want to move to New York City, you know. So he came to my masterclass and I thought, oh, my God, like this is so weird. I felt 18 all over again. But afterwards, he like loved it and had the best time and asked me if I'd be willing to come to a master class at the university. And I was like, ding, what if I move back here and work at your university and you put me through school and I get a degree? And he said, give me a week. And he made it happen. And so my husband and I at the time, and we have a son too, we were like 
our relationship is very fractured and things weren't good. So we both decided, you know, why don't you go down this path? You live in Virginia. We're going to move to Atlanta because our whole, our plan was to move to Atlanta the whole time. His best friend lived here and we wanted to o- open a performing arts studio here. We just felt like it was, how could I pass up the opportunity to have my education for free? Also have a job and um, maybe it might help us heal as human beings. So I did. I moved back into my bedroom that I grew up in with my mom and dad in my hometown on the farm and went to school at the age of 32. And I'm, I'm like setting all this up for Burdell so it makes sense to you. Not that you asked for it. I'm sure you're like, shut up, Brad. It's long-winded. But um, oh, I need I need stories behind stories, okay? okay I go, love okay. stories. So yeah, I, I decided to get a degree, a bachelor's degree in the arts, just because that's what I had done. But I mean, I'm like teaching these students like critical skills as actors, but I'm also like in algebra with them. You know what I mean? It's like, it was, a, it was odd, but interesting. So- my mom was working, the story is going all over the place. My mom was working at this private school nearby. And this, this girl that worked there, she was like, um, uh, some kind of, I forget what her job was, whatever. doesn't matter. She was in this band. Okay. Called sixth and main. And they sang a lot of Motown and they, you know, right up my alley, you know, um, and they needed a lead singer. And so she approached my mom one day and said, I heard your son was on Broadway and he's in town. Would he ever want to be in a band? Now, what you don't know is like, I've always wanted to front a band like my whole life. So that's kind of what happened. She reached out and I was like, are you kidding? I would love to do this in my spare time. She became one, again, one of my best friends. She now lives here in Atlanta. And so I was in this band with her, which led me to meet this drummer, this brilliant drummer and his brilliant pianist wife. And I'm obsessed with Adele. By the way, I'm seeing her in three weeks in Vegas. I can't even wait. I scheduled my back surgery around my Adele tickets. I'm not even lying to you. I'm really excited. And I had said to them, God, I want to do a night of like Adele songs. And I want to call it Bradell. <laughs> you know, and they were like in it to win it. <laughs> and so we just put this show together and it was a huge success. It was so cool. And we're thinking about doing it actually here in Atlanta. So yeah, that's kind of what, how a Burdell came about. That's so cool. I mean, who doesn't love a deal? I lo- yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. Did you see the poster for it? I did. <laughs> Half Adele's face, half mine. It's so good. That's what no, because I was going. So I do all my research because I just scroll through social media. That's how I do my research. Okay. Yeah. You know, or or I might even have the playbook. Mostly I have the playbook. You You're a Broadway fan. You're you diehard. I love that. You should see my collection of playbills. I have an ottoman in my living room, and the ottoman you open it up. There's like thousands of playbills in there. Can I tell you something? I left New York without a playbill from the shows that I was in. <laughs> I didn't even save those playbills. It's like I had memories. I was like, whatever. I know mm-hmm. my husband saves everything. I don't. You know? <laughs> I save a lot of stuff. That's awesome, though. I used to, but I, I guess living the experience, like I did it. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah. I don't need to go back and be like, who was in the cast? Like, it's all like in here, you know? See, that's what obviously me. I love to, especially if I see somebody in a show and then it's like you read their bio and it's like, oh, they were in Mamma Mia or they were in Wicked or something like that. And I'm like, oh, I've seen that show a million times. So the yep 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 they were in the cast <laughs> so it's pretty That's funny cool. to see that i definitely used to be like that and i have a funny story i remember seeing annie years ago on broadway with nell carter and i remember the star to be came out you know nyc that whole thing and i was like who is this girl sutton foster that was, it was sutton foster who played that role and i remembered her so specifically because i thought she was incredible and then i saw millie in previews on broadway 
And that was the first time I had ever seen an audience leap to their feet in the middle of the show. After Gimme Gimme, it was the most thrilling thing. I can't, I can't even explain it to you. So I, I'm, I'm like that too, though. If I see somebody and I, I'm amazed by them, I kind of like track their career and things like that. Oh, yeah, totally. She's, done, she's done all right for herself. <laughs> yeah, she's she's done all right. She's done all right. Fine, she's fine. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that you teach now and everything. So what would be your favorite thing about teaching? Oh, good question. Okay, well, it's going to be kind of a long-winded answer, but I really like students who are passionate. I do not like lazy students. I have a problem. I get really annoyed with them because I was never lazy. I mean, I came from nothing, nowhere, know how, and and trained my butt off and failed and learned and got back up and kept going because I loved it and I wanted it. And you, if you don't want it, like, what are you doing this for, right? If you're just doing it for fun, fine. But um, I really, my favorite thing is to train um, young musical theater performers uh, that are it's their everything like it was for me. I mean, that is my, and I'm good at it. I mean, I really think that this is, it's what I was, I think one of the things I was born to do in this life because I get it and I, I get the passion behind it. And I, I, I teach a lot of private students and I've got some, I wish I could like show you all the clips of my kids because they're like unreal. But we have, uh, we teach a, a college course at Orbit Arts Academy, which is my husband's arts academy. That's really, it's a college prep course. And like our students have gotten into some of the best schools all over. I mean, it's, it's so cool watching them. Like they're all starting to like graduate from college now. So I'm like, when's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? You know, that sort of thing. But I love, I love teaching the kids that want it. Like I wanted it. That's what I think. And I don't like lazy kids. Theater's not for lazy people. Okay. No, it definitely is not. Definitely is not. You're not just going to, you're not going to get any job that you want. Like if you, if you want to be in Wicked, if you want to be in whatever, you're not, they're not just going to say, Hey, so I saw your resume came across my desk. Hey, yeah. Hey, you want to do this? Maybe it's okay if you're lazy. No. Yeah. And eight times a week and you like play Fiero if you're lazy. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've worked with some lazy exactly. people. Okay. I've worked with some lazy. <laughs> they get into that long run and they're like, I've definitely worked with them. I'll name names anytime. I'm not afraid. <laughs> part two, part two. Yeah, right. <laughs> what has been your favorite show that you directed? Oh, good question. I, I think it is the Great American Trailer Park musical. Have you ever seen it? I have not, but I've I've heard I've heard I've heard a lot about it's it. So stupid. It is so stupid. <laughs> and I love it so much. And it's very funny that remember how I told you. This is private information, everybody. But I had a friend surprise visit me. He was our costume designer for the show, but I cast him as the older female in the show and he stole the show. He came to visit me today, but he was so brilliant in that show. I love directing that, but I'm also a writer. So like I, I write musical theater. If I could, I would. That's what I would do for my job. But currently I'm not Lin-Manuel Miranda or Pasek and Paul. I'm just not yet. Uh, yeah, exactly. In fact, we wrote a children's version, my writing partner and I, of The Velveteen Rabbit, and that's being produced in May, which is exciting. Cool. So be well, speaking of musicals, you did co-write co three musicals, mm -hmm. Collins Boy, The Gathering of the Waters, and Learning to Fly. What is it about each musical? Like, what was your inspiration to write each of those? So The Collins Boy was our original baby. Then 
seven or eight years since we started that one. It's based on a true story about a single mother in LA in 1928 whose son goes missing. And the it's at the height of the LAPD's corruption. And the police won't do anything to find this boy. They're like, oh, we're looking, we're looking. Well, six months later, they come to her and they say, we found your son. And it's this whole pomp and circumstance. And he gets off the train. And she's like, that's not my son. And they're like, yes, it is your son. Take him home be his mother. And so she, in reality, she did. She took the boy home for two weeks trying to convince herself. But like this boy was shorter than her son, right? They looked a little bit alike. Anyway, two weeks, she tried for two weeks and then she went back to them and said, I'm not caring for the stranger anymore. And they locked her in a mental institution. This really happened. And then this evangelical like radio personality back then finds out about it and really helps her get out. And basically the story is there's a man who's been going around kidnapping and torturing and raping these young boys. <laughs> Perfect material for a musical, right? It actually really is, to be honest. But he basically, he's sentenced for these other kids' deaths. And the day before he's to be hanged, he sends her a letter and says, I want you to come visit me. I want to tell you about your son. Because they suspected he did something to her son, but they didn't, they never had any real proof. And she went to visit him in jail. And when she got there, he was like, why are you here? I'm not telling you a thing. And so he, he, he got hanged. He was hanged and uh, she never really got to find out the truth about her son. So all of that being said, when I heard the story, it was so like, I, how could this happen? I, I don't understand how the police could do that. And this woman could, you know, endure this that um, I said to my writing partner, look, I've always wanted to write a musical. And she was one of my best friends. And she said, let's I'm in it. And so we started writing it. And, you know, we've gotten a lot of pretty great things out of it but if we're not done with it yet but like we were semi-finalists for the eugene o'neill center's national music theater conference and we were finalists for the atlanta musical theater festival here which we did right before the pandemic hit and so then when the pandemic hit we put it in the trunk because we were like what are we going to do so we started writing and in fact learning to fly is not happening anymore but we wrote a musical called a million pieces during the pandemic which may be getting produced in the fall of next year in upstate New York. And that's, it is, so my writing partner, her father unexpectedly died at the fall of 19. And she was so broken and grieving that she just, I was like, let's write. And she couldn't. And so I came up with this idea. Actually, after watching the show Dead to Me, did you ever see Dead to Me on Netflix? It's fantastic. No, I've never seen it. Okay. It's great. So it starts off, um, these people that have, in like a grief group. And so I had this idea, like, what if we write a musical about people in a grief group? And so we kind of conceptualized this idea and we have written this musical. It has eight characters in it and they play a total of 23 characters. And it's about a 90 minute musical about learning to cope. And something happens huge in this musical that kind of takes you by surprise but it's about learning how to move on and about what your faith means to you whatever that means you know so that that I'm super duper proud of and I can't wait to see that on stage one day and then gathering of waters was after I had graduated from college at 36 I knew that I wanted to get a master's degree so I went to Goddard College which is kind of independent study and I got a master's degree in creative writing with a focus in libretto so I had to write a musical as my final thesis. And I wrote The Gathering of Waters, which was, it's a story set in the early 60s about a black man and a white woman who strike up this unlikely friendship. He, he intervenes and saves her when 
these young kids are taunting her and her husband is abusive and they strike up this friendship and they agree to meet once a week and they just drive around the backwoods and they talk about how they feel. Well, of course they fall in love, but it's about everything that happens. And um, I don't like super happy musicals. Can you tell? It's not, doesn't have the happiest ending, but that one's kind of sitting in the trunk as well, because I feel like I really want to get an African-American co-writer on the piece because it deals with both races, even though my family was very mixed growing up, I just, I think it's the right thing to do. So yeah, but just, there's like a lot of like floating things happening and then Velveteen Rabbit's happening. And we um, wrote some music for a film called uh, Gretel and Hansel that was done. And yeah, we got our hands. That's in my next question. How did you yeah. know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So you wrote the music and lyrics for that. So yeah. is it easier to just write the music and lyrics when you haven't written the book as well or is there like a disconnect no that's a great question you know i think writers have this process like their own process i was actually listening to npr yesterday and two of these writers were like i sketch out everything and this other writer was like i'm a pantser do you know what a pantser is and they were like no and she was like i fly by the seat of my pants i don't know i just write what i write i'm a little bit of both i think in general i kind of i need to know where the story is and I think if you're a good writer, which I aspire to be, you know where the moment sings, right? Like where, otherwise, why do we have a song? Let's just write a straight play. So I think my favorite thing is creating a scene and then knowing, oh my God, that's, this is the song. Like it kind of will like shoot out at you sometimes. Yeah. So I, I love to have the book or at least have the story and know exactly where the songs go. And my writing partner, her name's Carrie Joy. She lives in Jersey, which doesn't make it easy. We do a lot of this. We're very like-minded. Like we can, we know exactly when the song's coming. I mean, sometimes we'll be both like reading a story and we'll be like, oh, that's where the song would go, you know? So yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of other ideas for shows. We're just writing. We're writing because you know what? When one of them gets produced, we'll be like, we have eight more here. Here are all my books. <laughs> take them, take them. <laughs> I'm not going to do this question. I'm going to save this question for just a little okay. bit. But uh, like I said, so scrolling through your social media, I just noticed like little things here, whatever. So um, who's your favorite golden girl and why? Oh, my God. Look. See? <laughs> Did you know that I had it on? No, I didn't. But I know well, I know it's because I saw the the pink one that you usually wear. He does getting... have his golden girl shirt on today, too. <laughs> I do. But I, that's so funny that you asked. Well, I love them all, mm -hmm. but I love this one so much because Rue McClanahan became a really good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. Tony did Wicked with Rue and they became fast friends. And so Rue had left the show by the time I joined the Broadway company. But, you know, when Tony and I fell in love, which was a whole other, you know, it was the gaze of our lives. It was like, what's happening? You know, we fell in love and moved in together and... Tony was like, you know, Rue wants us to come over for brunch. And I'm like, ain't no fucking way I can go to Rue McClanahan's house because I, I, what will I do? I mean, but we go to brunch and in true Rue fashion, she's like, I need you to pick up locks. I need you to pick up cream cheese. I need these bagels. Like we brought everything. Thanks, Rue. <laughs> but we, the first time I went, I was nervous as hell because, and this is a true story too. I was like nine and I used to watch the Golden Girls because my parents, I was the third kid. They were like, do whatever you want. I had a dream that I was the little boy on the Golden Girls. You know, like they would bring in like a little kid on shows. And I legit woke up the next day. My mom could tell you this. And I was like, when do I start rehearsals for my show? And my mom was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I'm on the Golden Girls. And my mom thought I was crazy. This is a true story. Anyway, we pull up to her door and she opens and I'm like, Blanche Devereaux is standing right there. 
And she's in like this fabulous long muumu and Tony, like Justin's like, ah, and runs in and like the, Tony hugs and goes in and she goes, and who are you? And I was like, I'm Brad. And I, uh, I'm just so honored. Thank you so much for letting me come to your home. She said, oh, I let everyone in once, but I don't always invite everyone back. And she turned around and walked on off. And I was like, you know, because all I wanted to do was impress her and love her. And, um, and she had all of this beautiful art around her house. And I was like looking at it and I said, Rue, who is this artist? I'm obsessed. And it was her. And I didn't know that. And from that moment on, we were like that. And uh, it was just those Sundays at Rue's house were magical. And, it, you know, I got to know her for about two years. And then she had a stroke and then another stroke. And um, she didn't want to see anyone after the first stroke. But she would let me, Tony and Justin, come over and... Tony and Justin went to visit her and I had a Memphis rehearsal actually, and I couldn't go. And I told her I loved her on the phone and her speech was kind of, you know, not normal then. And she died two days later. So it was a really, really special, something I'll like always cherish, getting to know Rue McClanahan, who was not Blanche Devereaux in life, but she had her Blanche moments, you know, <laughs> they came out here and there. Yeah. I always feel like well, if somebody plays a character, there's always a little bit of them. Well, that means you're a good actor, I think. You infuse yeah. yourself, like I was saying, you know? Yeah. No, she was an awesome lady. Mm-hmm. Balls of steel. Oh, my God. I'm not sure I want to know the answer to this question because I'm Uh-oh. a little jealous that this happened to you, but whatever. So um, <clears throat> you got to see my favorite boy band, New Kids on the Block, on tour. Went to their mixtape tour. And you got to hang out with donnie Wahlberg and my favorite joey mcintyre so how did that happen because joey did wicked with tony yeah don't be don't be jealous okay um tony did wicked with uh joey and so they were coming into town and he was like joey you know like we want to come see your show joey got us all tickets and we went and also debbie gibson was there which i i've been in debbie gibson's house before she didn't know i was in her house but i was i like had a fling with her assistant (laughs) thanks debbie you should have cleaned your floor because it was full of clothes (laughs) anyway Debbie Gibson, Tiffany was there. Salt and Peppa was there. Mm-hmm. It's like an epic night. But so like we go back afterwards and I mean, you've met Joey, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he has no idea who I am, but yeah. But still, he has the bluest eyes I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he's a dreamboat and just a, a sweetheart, a sweetheart is what he would say. And I was just like, oh my God. But then Danny comes, I mean, um, Donnie comes in. Who, Donnie Wahlberg in person is like the hottest thing I've ever seen in my life. And he was so kind and like, touchy and huggy they were they were just the most down-to-earth people uh it was it was so cool and like i kid you not when i was a kid jonathan was my favorite jonathan was like not everybody's favorite but he was mine i love jonathan me too oh my god but i saw him backstage and like immediately burst into tears it was like that little kid in me because i had his post excuse me i had his poster on my wall and when i saw jonathan knight in person I immediately started crying and Tony was like, what's wrong? I was like, he's over there. And Tony was like, let's go talk to him. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. When I was in Memphis and we had all the celebrities that would come, I like could not talk to them. I just, really? If I loved them, like I couldn't go talk to them. I was like, Gah. oh, see, I'm, I'm the opposite. I know we talked about this before, but any of your upcoming projects that you want to talk about besides what you already talked about? <laughs> um, well, Come see the Velveteen Rabbit in Atlanta in May, which is going to be really cool. It's a world premiere. Um, no, I mean, as soon as I know about a million pieces, I'll let 
you know. <laughs> um, no, it's 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 an interesting time as a writer in I think as a writer in general, but in musical theater because because of the big revolution that's kind of happened regarding uh, BIPOC artists and um, transgender artists and things like that that and and as it should be, people should have the right to be able to be seen equally. But it's hard because a lot of people don't want to hear new material from a white man, you know. So a lot of the things that we submit for they're not really looking for white writers and I get it, but I'm hoping that one day this little old gay white writer can get his thing chosen. And, and um, you know, I just want to get my dream is to like see one of my babies in a full production with everything, you know, I mean, Broadway is always a goal for things, but that, you know, I've done that. I just want, I would really love to be a, a writer that my work gets produced and I can be a writer for a living. That would be a dream. That would be a real dream. That is my dream. And I'm planning by the time I'm turning 50 that that happens, you know, but it's hard. It's a good dream. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. I, I believe it. You know, I've manifested all these other things in my life. I'm doing this too. Exactly. And and more than anything, I like really love to write. And so that who I never would have thought that my younger self. So it's, it's like a new thing for me and I, I love it. And I love telling stories and I like, I like making people cry. <laughs> not, not, I'm not trying to hurt them. I just like to emotionally make them available. You know, I like to make them feel things. There you go. Yeah. That's better than saying, I want to make them cry. <laughs> like I want to make you cry. <laughs> Horrible. Okay. And before we get to our last question, I would just like to remind our listeners that if they like what they hear, they can support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash at this podcast. Where can people go to find out more about you? Oh, God. Okay. This is what I, okay. I'm going to just say this for anybody that's listening. I need someone to help me. <laughs> I can't. I need like, I need to do like a website. I need to do like, we need to have a website as writers. We, I need help because I teach full time. We help. I, I, you'll help me. You know, I do Jeremy Jordan's website, right? I think I did know that. Okay. But like, I don't know. Here's the thing. I'm addicted to TikTok. So like, I've been studying TikTok and like, TikTok's like my new university because I learn a lot. Like, I don't, I don't just watch all the dances and things like that. Um, I've posted two TikTok videos and I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I only posted one response once because I'm just, I, I enjoy watching, but I, I really need as a writer, I really need to get present like all the kids are and do things. But I just, I teach full time and then I have private students and it is, and I'm a dad and I'm the only one that cooks in my house. So I don't have a whole lot of time to do it, but I need someone to help me. So maybe you can help me. I will help you. I think I even have a website somewhere. I don't even know. what it's somewhere. I do. I think there is one, but I don't, okay. even, I don't know how to do it or run it or what it even, I don't even know what it is. So I, I need something where I can know where to go and how to do it. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Brad, thank you so, so much for coming on. I love chatting with you. It was great. And maybe the next time that you're in New York, you come see a show, we'll, we'll get together. I would love that. Okay, great. I will, I'll be there in April, actually. I'm seeing okay. Sweeney Todd. I will, be, I will be here. Yeah, I would love that. That'd be great. Great. Let's grab a drink. Okay, cool. All right. Bye. Bye.